Welcome to Mountain View Church Audio, coming to you from the Wilderness City, Whitehorse, Yukon. We strive to introduce people to Jesus through scripture, biblical instruction, and prayer with authenticity and vibrancy. You don't need to know anything about the Bible. Just sit back, relax, and let God do the rest. Welcome to Mountain View Church. My name is Elijah, and I'm thankful to have you today. Uh, Today I'm going to be talking about lament, and I'm going to be diving into Psalm 10, which is a psalm of lament. And so I'll start off by saying, we as human beings are motivated by pleasure. Uh, The job you work at, the person you marry, and the place you live, as long as it's within your power, you're going to make a choice that's going to lead to the most comfort for you in your life. And as a byproduct of that in the world, we're going to avoid tragedy. We're going to do our best to try to distance ourselves from evil and suffering if we can. And while we're wired to do that, it's actually not the best thing for us to do. Um, If you've been around somebody who's undergone a significant tragedy or you yourself have undergone one, what you know is that it changes you. Uh, You you start this journey in one position and you end up on the other side uh, in a different position, sometimes a very different person. And so the real question is going to be, what's that change going to look like? So if you're a Christian, are you going to use this as an opportunity to push into your faith uh, to to nurture your relationship with Jesus and really rely on him? Or are you going to turn your back on God because you feel like he's turned his back on you? And if you don't know God and you don't have a framework for this, uh, the best you can hope for, I suppose, is to put your life back together to get back to a point of the most comfort that you can find, uh, which is, don't get me wrong, that's a good place to go. But the, but the, the flip side of that is... Many people who undergo a tragedy, they end up in very dark places, usually leading to uh, engaging in behaviors where they are, they're committing a significant amount of self-harm in the things that they do. And so what I want to do in this sermon, I want to equip you guys with a way to process lament, and the Bible is going to be a great tool for that. And it's, it's not just for us personally, but also for when we encounter other people, right? When we want to encourage other people in our lives. And so I would say that lament itself is a God-ordained pattern to process grief. There's a way that we can process grief and honor God, and I'm really excited to show you how to do that. Thank you. Hey, hey, and welcome to Mountain View Church. My name is Elijah, and I'm super thankful to have you. Now, if you know me, you know that I've only known the Lord for a few years, and if you had told me when I first walked into this church that I'd be in this position, I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, But here I am, and here you are, and I just want to say it's, it's such a privilege and such an honor to be here. I hope that the things that I have to say to you, uh, they're an encouragement, that they're a blessing to you. I hope that I'm able to use this time um, to bless you in your personal life and, and help you as you go on in your journey with Jesus to try to grapple with some of the harder questions. So I'm going to lead us in a bit of prayer, and then I'll dive right into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great goodness in this world. Lord, we thank you that you are present even at times uh, where we have a lot of questions. God, I thank you that your word is true and that we can rely on it. I thank you that you have taken the first step to, to illuminate some of the dark places in this world and help us process it. I thank you that you've never left us alone, but have always been concerned with our well-being. Jesus, help me to speak well, to keep on time, and to really... Uh, really articulate the things that I want to say well to the people uh, I'm communicating with. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking at Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is a psalm of lament. 
And so we'll, we'll define lament. Lament, as Merriam-Webster uh, defines it, is to mourn aloud. But I would sort of push against that and say, biblically, there's a, there's a deeper aspect to it. There's a spiritual aspect to it um, that kind of underpins just verbalizing to other people that you're experiencing tragedy. Um, and so if you, uh, if, if you look out into the world and you see that there are things that are hard to process, uh, you, you see people doing evil things, and it's hard for you, um, if you don't know God, this can be one of the best arguments to disprove his existence. So for the secular community, if you don't believe in God, you're going to look at the world, you're going to say, okay, well, there's, there's starving children, there's slavery, there's the sex trade, uh, th- there's all this horrible stuff. I, I don't believe that a good God would allow these things to happen in the world. And if, and if that person is never presented with the other side of the argument, right, we as Christians know that that's a poorly framed argument. But if they're never presented with the other side, it's a great argument. Uh, it's a great argument against God. And so we're going to dive into the text. Looking at verse 1 in chapter 10 of the book of Psalms, it says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And so that statement actually sums up the point of the person in the secular community, right? They're saying, I don't believe God is present in their case because they don't believe God exists. But for us who, who have some framework for who God is or we follow him, there are times when we will look into the world and we will say, okay, I don't really see where God is in this mess. I don't understand. And, and it can be a very difficult journey for us to be on. And so I, I, wanna, I, I first want to start off by validating that feeling that we have when we look out into the world and and we kind of feel heartbroken and we we have a lot of questions as to why it is the way it is and it sort of leads us to a place where we despair and then we share that with other people and we share that with the lord um i'll get you guys if you have your bibles and i hope you do i'll get you to turn back to genesis and we're going to look at chapter six uh verses five and six uh It reads, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so that when I first came to know Jesus and I got familiarized with the text, that that small excerpt totally floored me. Because I'd actually gone through that journey myself. I looked into the world. It grieved me to my heart. I actually turned in on myself, and I cut myself off from the rest of the world. And, and that was kind of the journey that I was on. But when I read this, I, I was like, whoa, no way. God agrees with me, except the, the, the order shifted. I feel that way because that's in alignment with how God feels about the world. Um, but to, we, we need to clarify this, and it kind of goes into a hard place. Uh, what the text tells us is that God actually doesn't regret the world itself. He regrets that he made man in the world. And so that's kind of a hard truth that we have to grapple with, that it's not the world itself, it's not nature, it's not animals uh, that cause the world to be what we can, we can define as an evil place. It's actually the behavior of mankind. Um, and while... I think in our hearts, we want to believe that that's not true. Uh, the evidence would kind of point to the contrary, right? We live in a time where we're, uh, we're equipped with more technology. 
uh, and, and, and just more material goods than we've ever had. And we still seem to find a way to be cruel. We still f- seem to find a way to be oppressive. And so it's not really a lack of stuff or an issue of um, something, some ethereal force without, but actually th- this malevolent behavior comes from within. And that's sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, now, if we think about God as the father, God is the creator of the universe. He's infinite. He's eternal. And he, he's so big, it's actually kind of hard to, to picture who he is when, it, when the text tells us that he spoke the universe into creation. Do we even understand that? I know I don't. I sort of have a very small picture of it, but I don't grasp the full reality of it. And so what God actually does um, later, later on in the human timeline, he does something really incredible. He comes into the world as a man, and he has a purpose. And, and this man is Jesus Christ. He's fully God fully man, and th- there's th- this is um, a part of, of the cosmic story that we're in. And one of the byproducts of him coming into the world as a human being means that we can relate with him. We can see our own emotions and our own personalities and kind of reflect those against the God of the universe and sort of see where we measure up and, and also find a person that we can emulate and behaviors that we can emulate. Uh, and so I want to point... Uh, into John's gospel in the New Testament, uh, chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus also feels sorrow. The verse itself is simply, Jesus wept. Well, what's he weeping about? In this case, uh, a man named Lazarus, who is his friend, has died. And Jesus comes into this group of people, and they're all full of sorrow. They're experiencing this tragedy. They're very upset. And being a part of that community, while they lament, he laments with them, right? He steps into the timeline, he steps into the mess, and he identifies with the very people um, who, who are, are suffering, right? He's not a God who stands apart. He's not a God who is distant. And mo- I think m- very importantly, he's not a God who denies us the right to, to feel these things. And so we see this as on, a very, on a very small scale. It's not simply that when God looks at the world and he sees big events like, for example, the Holocaust, and it really... And, and things like that really bum him out. It's not just big events. In this case, he is in a, he, he's in a very closed setting with a, with a family unit, and he's expressing sorrow with them, right? And so it's even the small-scale stuff. So if you have something going on in your life, I would just submit to you, God really cares about that. It does matter to him, right? You're not in, you might feel insignificant, but you're not, at least not in the eyes of God. Um, if, we, if we turn a little bit further into, into Luke's gospel— and we look at chapter 19, verse 41, as Jesus is entering uh, the city of Jerusalem, he weeps for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so this is kind of a crazy thing. If we look at that, by any human metric that we have, there's no reason for Jesus to be lamenting those people, to be weeping over those people, right? Jesus is omniscient. He, he can see, well, he knows all the events that will take place in all existence, right? He's God. He knows all things. And so he, as he's coming into Jerusalem, he knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that he's going to be tortured beforehand. He knows that somebody who he's actually been in close community with for several years is going to betray him. And that in his hour of, of deepest need, all of his friends, the people who care about him, are actually going to turn their backs on him. Uh, they're, they're even, in some cases, going to deny even, even knowing him. And so as he comes into the city, there's these crowds of people who are, are full of joy, and they're celebrating his entrance because they think 
they know who Jesus is going to be and what he's going to do. He knows that, in, that he's going to disappoint them. And the very people who are cheering for him are going to be baying for his blood in three days. And so very clearly, Jesus is the victim of the story, but Jesus isn't crying for his own situation. And if he's God, you, you have to ask yourself why. What's the, what's the point? What, what does he know that we don't know? What, what's, what is it about his personality or his perspective that's different than ours? And so what I would say is that Jesus sees from the top down, he sees a, a, a much bigger perspective than we do. He understands it's not simply death and violence that are the problem. Those are just symptoms of, of the real problem. The real problem is actually a broken relationship and all evil in the world, it, it comes out of that. It's an outflowing of that. And so what we have to do is we kind of actually have to talk about that because it's, it's a pivotal moment in human existence whereby everything went from being perfect and, and, it, and it ended up in the state where we see it now, where we experience all this tragedy and some of it happens to us and some of it happens out in the world. And it really, and it, if we're honest, it kind of breaks our heart and we want to distance ourselves from it. And so in, in the very beginning, God created man to be in a relationship with him and God created man um, in a way that was suited to man's ultimate good. The first man, his name was Adam, and he, God created him in a garden, and the garden was perfect. He created a woman to be with him so that they could be in love and be in marriage and enjoy one another and have community so that the man wouldn't be alone. He created a variety of fruit trees, and he, made, and he told the man and the woman they could eat all of them. Uh, he also created all the animals, and he actually presented these animals to Adam and he told Adam to name them all. And so we can kind of get a framework for God's original intention for creation was, was actually aligned with man's ultimate good. Um, in this scenario, the best thing was actually not the stuff. The best thing was that God's presence was fully known by man in that scenario. Okay, when, when, when we read through Genesis, what we read is that, that God walked with the man and the woman in the cool of the day, right? So Jesus was present in the garden with the man and the woman. They had community uh, and, the, and there, was no, there was no damage to this relationship at that point in time. And what, what ends up happening is in, in all of this, God, in fact, he did create one tree that was not for the man and the woman. And he gave them one command. He said, you shall not, you shall eat of any, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you do so, you shall surely die. And I mean, spoiler alert, they, they ate from it. And, and that actually is the root of all the problems that we have in the world, right? Everything is just an outflowing from that first point of disobedience. And it's it's not so much it's not so much that god was just diso disappointed that they disobeyed him in fact what they had done in, in in disobeying him they they moved away from his his will god's will is always for the ultimate good of the universe that's who his character is we measure good and evil based on whether or not god wills it or whether or not he he uh, he is against it. So good is anything that aligns with God's will. Evil is anything that pushes against it. God's will was for them to not eat of the tree, but they did. And ultimately God's will was for them to never die, but they ate from the tree and death entered into the timeline. And so if, if we turn back um, into Psalm 10, what we're going to see through verses two and uh, through 11 is kind of a practical outflowing 
of what happens when disobedience flows out into the world, when, when the ability to do things that are counter to God's will enter into the timeline, um, that, that, that amounts to all the evil that we see. And so the psalmist, after kind of articulating that he feels that God is not present, he then is going to go ahead and justify the reason he feels that way. And so I'm not going to go through all of it, but we'll start at verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. All right, do we not see that? Do we not see that in our present world? Do we not see people who have very limited agency or le very limited um, ability to move around in the, the economic world and people who have the capacity to uplift them, in many cases, they don't. They actually oppress them. Um, and this kind of carries on further into slavery. Uh, it, it's, it's just a reality that we see. And there's an important word that we pick up in here, which is, that, which is wicked. And so... The word wicked is not really what the conventional wisdom would say wickedness is. It's not simply evil. Being wicked is being evil, uh, but, but it's not simply that clear. Wickedness, is a, in, in a biblical sense, is selfishness, is a, is a desire to put one's will for, for their own desire ahead of God's will, and, and, and a desire to pursue that instead of God's will. That's where we get wickedness. So... In effect, uh, Adam's first sin with Eve was a wicked act and wickedness enters into the world. And so I just want to be clear, like if you're a Christian uh, and, and you see that word, uh, that's not like those people out there. Uh, that's not those people who go to that other church who believe things that, that you don't or whatever. It, it's all of us. It's an endemic issue that afflicts mankind, right? We're all, we're all afflicted with some degree of sin in our lives. And we all experience this broken relationship with God that, our, that the first man and first woman, uh, they experienced. We've inherited that. Uh, we'll move ahead in the text, and we're going to look at verse 7. His mouth, his, uh, he, we're, we're talking about the wicked man still. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And so when we look at that, it's fairly self-explanatory. Um, but it kind of tells us about the, the it, it gives us a picture of the distinction between God's nature and man's nature for wicked man is deceitful, but God never lies. Um, God does not do cruel things for any purpose at all, but mankind does. And that's kind of what the word iniquity talks about. It's, it's, it's evil actions that we undertake. And all of, this, all of this stuff that's summed up in verses 2 through 11 kind of reaches its pinnacle at verse 10. And it's a really dark statement. Verse 10 reads, The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And so that's a, that's a cruel reality in the world. Right now in the world, there's actually more living slaves than there have been in any other point in, in human history, numerically speaking. Um, and so if you, if you look at that person as the ultimate picture of a helpless person, that person is born into a certain life. They have no capacity to get out of it. They experience all the suffering tragedy throughout that life, and they end up in the very same place that they started. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate reality. Um, but distancing ourselves from it doesn't actually stop it from being true. And so that's, that's, that's kind of what the author is summing up here when he says that the, helpless, that the helpless are crushed and fall by the might of the wicked. And so you, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, this is not really a, like a helpful sermon, um, and I'm just bumming you out. 
And I guess I'm trying to do that because actually that's what, that's where the text is going, right? I'm following the text. And what the text is going to do is actually a really beautiful thing. In verse 12, there's going to be a complete about face in the narrative. It's going to, it starts out in this really dark place, right? The statement of, uh, of, of, of God is gone and I, I don't feel his presence. And this is how I know God is gone because all this evil stuff's happening. And that's kind of the natural progression. You have to understand, um, you have to have a good grasp of the, of the hopelessness and the, and the sorrow of the world to get a good understanding of how meaningful and how impactful a real hope can be in that mess. And so verse 12, verse 12 reads, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. And so this is not really a case of the author commanding that God should do something. It's not um, the psalmist reaching out to God and saying, hey, you have to do this thing. Uh, To be a little bit more exact, what the psalmist is doing is he is restating what God's nature already compels him to do. Both, uh, as stated before, both the secular person who believes there is no God and the Christian, we actually agree that God is good. The, the reason the secular person believes that God is good is he says that the world couldn't have evil in it if God existed. He's, he's admitting that God must be good if he does exist. And so what the psalmist is doing here in verse 12 is just kind of clarifying that idea that God is good. And he's restating both for himself and for anybody who would read this text that there actually is a hope, that God is good, and that this mess, that there's a distinction. God's goodness is not marred by the evil of the world, and he's actually not restricted by sin because sin is simply anything that runs counter to him. It doesn't affect him. We're in a situation where we're affected, but God is actually not dirtied by this whole mess. And so if you look into the world and you see that there's a bunch of reasons to have sorrow, the, the, the real hope in this It's counterintuitive, but the real hope in this is that that feeling is validated. The real hope in this is that that is not just some arbitrary feeling that you have to bum you out. It's something that points you to God. It's something that points you to ask deeper questions that lead you to a place where this broken relationship is reconciled. I myself, before I knew Jesus, I had a pretty good understanding of a whole variety of worldviews. I sort of dabbled in all of them. Um, And, and, The beautiful thing about Christianity is Christianity is the only one that really truly validates your own sorrow for the state of the world. All other worldviews, they either don't do that at all or they do a really bad job of it. I'll just kind of go through a couple of them to see you, or to show you, sorry, the distinction between them. So if you're a naturalist, right, you you believe firmly in evolution, we're just kind of like very complicated monkeys, it actually doesn't make any sense at all for you to feel bad about kids that get shot in a school somewhere else. You didn't know those kids. Um, th- it has no bearing on you. Uh, you could walk your entire life and probably uh, not arrive there, right? So, so what, what is it that ties you to their experience that makes you feel sorrow for them? And so that worldview actually kind of crumbles. It doesn't provide you good answers for the way that you feel about the state of the world. If you look at New Age philosophy or Eastern mysticism, any of that stuff, it more makes these generalized statements that things simply are, that it's only mankind that impute our own personal opinion about what good and evil are. And in fact, nothing is really good and nothing is really evil. Things simply are. And we don't, uh, Buddhism would say you don't like change and any change that you don't want to happen is where sorrow comes from. So if you could just accept all changes, you'd never be sad. And 
that's not, that's not a helpful belief system at all. That actually says that this, this, this sorrow you have in you, this cause for lament in your heart is a silly way to feel that you need to educate yourself and, and, and learn how to not feel that way because that's the right way to live. And, and, and then the, the, I would say the most negative, really truly the, the evilest ideology around this is actually karma. Now we, as Canadians, we like the idea of karma, right? We're like, yeah, I believe in karma, especially when things are, you know, happening to us and they're generally good. Then we're like, it gives us this feeling that we're doing more good than evil in the world. Um, but if, if, if good people are rewarded by good things, then the corollary must also be true. And so you take that wisdom and give that to the parent of a child dying of leukemia. What you have to, now what you have to say is that that child, okay, that child did something in some life it, 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 because it, karma implies reincarnation. Okay, that person did some kind of cosmic sin and now they deserve this. And not only the child, but all the people around the child who are suffering communally with that child. And first of all, that's a lie. That's not true. Um, and it's a real tragedy, in fact, that there are cultures who believe it to the very end. If you go into, um, if you go into the Middle East, if you go to, into India and anywhere Hinduism is practiced, they actually believe this to a full extent. And it's a lie about reality. And so what I, I would say is that the ultimate tragedy is that in, instead of finding the truth, the truth that, that uh, this, this sorrow in your heart should lead you to, Instead of finding that, if you were to grab onto, as a life raft, you were to grab onto some false worldview and go from the beginning of your life to the end of your life, learning how to distance yourself from sorrow, learning how to process it without identifying with it, learning how to have less compassion even. Um, if you were to go through your life experiencing all this tragedy, believing in something that's not true, and then end your life still with a broken relationship with him, eternally separated from him. That's the ultimate tragedy because you've experienced all this sorrow and it's just going to go on for eternity because the issue is not, uh, is, is not anything but the, but the broken relationship you have with God and the separation between you and him. This sorrow is actually as counterintuitive as you might think it is. It's meant to, to, to that you should find your way to him. And so we're, we're just going to look at the last two verses here, because this is kind of a summation of the ultimate hope that we have. Um, it, the, the text reads, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And so this is, a, this is an incredible thing. This is a pointer to the New Testament. Jesus comes into the timeline and he's actually the fulfillment of this hope that we see written. Um, and it's, it's not so much that all evil ends or that you, you, Jesus comes into the world and everything gets better. But Jesus comes in and he actually, because he has this eternal perspective, he solves the root problem, the root tragedy that we all experience with this broken relationship that we have. And so it's, again, not the case that the Christian never experiences loss or never has family members get sick, but that there's, that there's this ultimate eternal hope that extends beyond the suffering. And, and in this built relationship that Jesus initiates with us, we can actually find ourselves um, utilizing this sorrow that we have to build our relationship with God. Uh, all people will do better in their lives if they align their intentions with God's will. 
and we can use we can use language around tragedy and around sorrow to help people do that. Um, you might be asking, okay, well, what, what is it about Jesus? Well, the, the issue at hand with Jesus is that when, like John Piper calls it the great exchange, whereby Jesus comes into the world and all the sinfulness of man is actually attributed to him and, and, and his innocence is attributed to us. Being fully God and being fully man, Jesus stepped into the timeline and committed no sin because his will was always aligned with the will of the father. It's something that we can't do. We grasp at it. I, as a Christian, try to do it. I can't pull it off all the time. Not so with Jesus. Jesus, he came into the timeline to bear the guilt, right? Remember, Adam left and Eve left and they had to die because they sinned. Jesus was the only human figure to ever not deserve to die. That's why he made... Uh, the perfect sacrifice on our account. And so, you know, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't actually um, explored th this deeper reality, what I would say is you, you need to kind of look at these, look at these deeper truths and don't run from them. Uh, there's another book of the Bible called the book of Ecclesiastes. And in it, the author writes that it's actually better to attend a funeral than a party. And the reason being is that you ask these eternal questions and, and the, the end result of answering these questions is meant to bring you to God. And so maybe you do know Jesus and you're kind of in a lukewarm period in your life. Well, that's okay. Jesus is eternally forgiving. He is uh, eternally loving. He, he initiated the relationship with us. It's not dependent upon um, who we are or where we're at in our lives. It's dependent upon his goodness. He invites us into a relationship with him. He invites us into a relationship with God, the father. He imputes innocence to us. And ultimately, uh, I would just also tell you, he doesn't like, there's, there's this, this myth around Christianity where pe people have this idea that as Christians, there's things you're not allowed to do. Well, sort of what Jesus does. He doesn't prevent you from doing things. He changes what your heart wants to do things. By God's grace, you will look out into the world and your heart for the sorrow and tragedy will start to extend to people that, that you normally wouldn't have, have um, any empathy for. There will be people who, who dislike you, people who hate you, and you'll have sympathy on them for the same reason that Jesus had sympathy on you, right? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was weeping for all the people with a broken relationship. He was weeping for you. And he came into the timeline to fix this problem. And so I would invite you into a relationship with him. I would invite you uh, to, to actually say a prayer with me and, and, and take this invitation uh, to where it's meant to go, which is a restored relationship with God and your ultimate good and his glory. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for this day that you've given us. And Lord, I thank you um, that you have, you have calibrated our lives perfectly um, to point us to you. You know each one of us intimately. You know exactly what we need. Lord, I pray for those that know you and I pray for those that don't, that in, in our daily lives, we would always be growing in our understanding of you. Lord, you are always ready to reconcile with us. It's nothing that we can do. It's only what you have done on the cross. And so we thank you for that. We love you because of what you have done and because of who you are. We thank, we're thankful that you have had mercy on us. And I, I personally am thankful for this church that you've invited me to be a part of. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.
Hey guys, I have a couple of uh, discussion questions for you. First question is, have there been times in your life that you have felt that God was absent? I'll repeat that. Have you, have there been, sorry, have there been times in your life where you have felt that God has been absent? It's a tough question. I think we can probably all answer yes. Now, the second question is, how has God shown you in the fullness of time that he was always there? How has God shown you in the fullness of time that he was always there? Because in fact, he is. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Mountain View Church Audio. If you have given your life to Jesus today or would like to join, serve, or support Mountain View Church, please let us know. Email connect at mountainviewwhitehorse.ca. That's connect at mountainviewwhitehorse.ca. Lastly, feel free to connect with us through social. Just search at Mountain View Whitehorse. Have a blessed week.